Do you ever find yourself confused when it comes to health and fitness? Have you been searching relentlessly on the most effective ways to achieve your fitness-related goals, only to find yourself even more frustrated? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to learn from the best, shorten your learning curve, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. Welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Welcome back to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. I'm Mike Perry, one of your co-hosts, and I'm here with my good friend, as always, Brett Jones. Brett, how are you today? Mike, fabulous, and today's a very special podcast. We're in the same room recording the podcast, and the way we have the mic set up, we get to stare lovingly into each other's eyes through the entire podcast. At least we're not using the adductor machine, (laughs) (laughs) because that is, you know, when you never want to make eye contact. But yeah. It's a little different because uh, we don't get to really do this in person, but it's 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 uh, it's kind of fun and um, yeah. So this is going to be a lot of fun today. We are going to we're going to dive into a, a topic that most people need to hear, but probably aren't that interested in, and that's all about just mastering the basics and getting really really good at the fundamentals. It's not sexy. It doesn't sell. It's uh, not going to get you a ton of likes, but when it comes to progress, it's probably the most important thing. Hundred percent. Uh, we've had a quote from a. Uh, spec ops individual uh for years that the elite are just better at the basics than everybody else and it's it's incredibly true um and you can boil that down into almost any sport any situation uh baseball is still catch the ball throw the ball hit the ball and then run from point a to point b like that hasn't changed uh football is still throw the ball catch the ball run the ball block, tackle, it's the basics. There's four punches in boxing. There's, you know, it's, it is, and, you know, as a grappler yourself, you know that uh, the, the amount of time you spend in skill practice when, it's, when you're on the mat and things are serious, there's probably three to four techniques that you rely on, that you pull out of the bag on a regular basis because they're the basics, they're the fundamentals. If you execute them well, they work. Yeah, and, and, and I think uh, one of the things that people don't understand about the basics is we're not, we're not attacking the basics because that's, that's our goal. We're attacking the basics because they're there for a reason and there are depths to the, to the basics, right? There's, there's so much information that can be mined out of the basics. And what I like to do is if we are looking at something as basic as like a kettlebell deadlift, um, yes, it's a very simple exercise, but the way that you coach it, the way that you set it up, the way that you cue, that's where you get into the details. But it's still a basic movement. It's it's nothing that we're trying to do super fancy. But one thing that I've learned over, uh, you know, over the last 20 years is that um, I feel like I've gotten better at a coach, not because I've introduced all of these crazy new exercises, but I've had a, just a greater understanding of the basics and I've learned how to teach those in a more efficient fashion. And that has allowed my athletes and my clients to uh, sort of reap the benefits of, of, of my coaching because I used to do things and, and I would overcomplicate things. And, uh, and I think it was because I was trying to prove that maybe I was a little bit smarter than I was, but I was actually trying to sound smart. And um, once I get to that point, I was like, you know what, this simply does not work. Um, I just focused on the basics and, and I kept on trying to refine those skills. And that is when I got a lot more successful as a coach. And that's when my clients uh, did the same thing. And I think it's it's people don't want to hear it because they want to skip steps, right? People don't want to practice the same thing over and over again because it does get boring. But listen, boring equals results, right? I mean, if you want to get really good at something, you have to do it over and over and over again. It's a 10,000 hour rule, right? I mean, you don't master something overnight. Um, and it just takes time. But uh, for some reason, people just, they forget about it. And they want to skip steps. They want to start off with something and they're like, okay, what's what's next? What's next? What's next? And I think um, you know, we all want to progress. We all want to get better. But at the same time, we can't always be thinking what's next because sometimes we don't even, we don't even own what we've just started learning yet. And I think people just are always in a rush to, to move on, but uh, you miss things. You, you, you tend to sort of almost bypass those little intricate things that you learn from the process and the journey. And I think for a lot of people, that's what they need. That's what makes you better. I mean, you've been, you've been teaching kettlebells for 20 years and you're still going back to the deadlift. You're still going back to the basics. And 
you've taught a handful of people how to swing a bell, right? And I know there's been scenarios in, in, in your life that you've, you know, you've worked with a ton of people and they were probably expecting the fancy drill or the, the crazy cue or this mind blowing thing. And you're like, no, let's just, let's just step back a little bit and let's, let's see what the basics look like. And, uh, they work. They're not sexy, but boy, do they work. I, um, <clears throat> at recent, uh, events where I was teaching, I, I was telling the students that, uh, uh, over the 20 years that I've been teaching people kettlebells, I have yet to fail to improve somebody's swing by going back to their deadlift. It is, it's, it's where you step back to. It is the fundamental, uh, it's the foundation of that high-speed power movement is that slow-motion deadlift. And that can, you know, inch wide, mile deep, <clears throat> lots of analogies and things that we could talk about as far as, you know, if we look at uh, powerlifting. Uh, people that spend 20, 30, 40 years competing in three lifts. And they're constantly trying to refine their technique and, and do better at those three lifts. Olympic lifters spend lifetimes and careers uh, perfecting two slash three movements in the clean and jerk and the snatch. And are there assistant movements, assistance movements, and things that you're a specialized variety and uh, other things that you learn that assist you in your skill progression? Yes. Um, but if we started looking at our journey towards this pie-in-the-sky skill mastery as this long slope where there are going to be roadblocks and we have to have skills and drills to get us around those roadblocks so that we can continue making progress. Uh, I learn something every time I swing a bell. Every time I swing, I can focus on something um, reconnect a little bit better, um, have, have my lats involved uh, just a little bit differently, push through the ground a little, you know, just whatever it is that I'm focusing on at the time. But I've done a, a couple of swings in, in the past 20 years, and I'm still trying to refine, enhance, and, and make that skill better. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the iron cardio stuff and the things that, that, um, that, that I've been doing with that. Um, that, that is a, a true example of the basics executed well and done uh, with confidence and results follow. Absolutely. And, and, and I think a lot of people are probably going to be interested to hear that you're learning something new every time you swing. And, and I think there's a few things to, to learn from that, especially because you have been doing it for a very, very long time. And I think the first thing that people really don't do is they don't pay attention when they're, when they're training. I think they go in and they want to exercise and they want to get a training effect. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in, in, in the world of Strong First, we talk about strength as a skill. And, and when you are either learning to acquire a skill or practicing a skill, a skill, you need to have the awareness. You need to be sort of dialed into what's going on because there are those little things, like you said, pushing into the ground, getting your lat to feel a little bit differently. All of these little things are going to really change the game if you're paying attention. But if you're just going in there and you're trying to exercise and just you know get huffing and puffing you're not really learning you're just going through the motions and you're getting a training effect and and i get it there's sometimes where that's what you want to do and, and there's nothing wrong with it but if you are trying to improve your skill set you need to be brutally aware and also get people to give you some feedback because i mean i've sent you videos on my swings you've even sent me stuff and and we go back and forth and we talk about it we try to find ways to get better and uh, i think that's uh, just a big part of it right we need to we need to look at all of these situations whether it's a deadlift or a snatch and and you know it's it's kind of the idea of you've got to you know put a few reps in and then you got to sit back and go you know what did i feel what can i do differently how can i make this a little bit smoother how can i work on the transition within my hand i mean there's all these little things that happen but if you're not paying attention then you're never going to learn those things and and one of the things that we're really going to dial in uh and talk about today is just the the, the kettlebell swing and and we know that the, the swing is born from the deadlift, but even before that, you have to have the prerequisite mobility to get in those position shapes of posture to begin with. So, um, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit more. Let's, um, let's really dive into the deadlift a little bit. Um, Brett, I'm gonna let you kind of start off with this. Um, what's the, why is the deadlift so important? Just the foundation, uh, how we pick things up, how we should move, um, you know, we look at it from a very athletic hinge standpoint. 
uh, have an article on strongfirst.com that, that talks about, um, you know, is that a squat or a deadlift and kind of defining out uh, the, the progression on those and, and, and where, that, um, where that continuum lies. And, and, you know, strength conditioning, maybe more so than some other fields. Uh, you have a variety of people that try to own certain things. They want to be known for X, Y, or Z. Um, and we, we try to kind of change the name on, on, on some things. Um, when we look at the hinge continuum, um, and there's two aspects here, uh, we can never forget the individual. Uh, somebody with long femurs and short torso versus somebody with long torso, short femurs, uh, just to play both ends of the bell curve there. Um, those two deadlifts are going to look very different, uh, and they should look very different. The basics are maintained. Shoulder above hip, hip above knee, um, maybe a vertical to slightly uh, inclined uh, little forward shin angle uh, at the tibia. Um, those, those basics are going to be represented in both of those very different uh, hinges. But then we can take the hinge from what would be considered a very uh, Romanian deadlift or stiff-legged variety where uh, there's this hinge through the hip and the torso comes down very aggressively uh, with minimal knee bend. <clears throat> and on the other end of the spectrum, we have a pretty good amount of knee bend um, that I would say is more analogous to a broad jump. Um, and that sort of action that we would use to really produce power that athletic position is really what we, we want to see out of our out of our deadlift, and if you if you think of um, a, a good athlete who's in the ready position and and um, you know, prepared for for business, it's going to look pretty pretty similar to what we want within the kettlebell swing, and so that deadlift foundation, that ability to go slow, and I, and I think people uh, they uh, there's uh, I've joked about it for a while, but uh, there's there's people out there that say, you know, if you train slow, you'll move slow. And it's like, oh, God, please stop. Um, that's not accurate. If all you ever did was move slow, okay, may, maybe we're in a situation where that could be considered to be uh, a risk. Uh, but if you're, and, and martial artists have been doing slow motion katas for years, a lot of fast martial artists out there. Uh, so, you know, as long as you're, the, the slow motion or the slow training is part of what you're doing. Um, I think it sets a tremendous foundation and, and allows you to learn the skill in just a very different way. As uh, you know, speed traditionally is the last training variable, the last variable we add to any, any movement pattern or exercise. And so really embrace that opportunity to, to take your time, um, understand the deadlift, get into those nuances of wedging, of of creating inter-abdominal pressure, uh, <clears throat> of how you move that energy through your body and, and how you can become one piece via the lats and the glutes and the, the, the way the body connects. Um, so yeah, I just, if, if that little tirade doesn't show, you know, some of the layers that you can get into, um, and we could spend another podcast on concept of wedging, um, not wedgies, but wedging. That's a short podcast. That's, a that's actually, that's, 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 that's just a video. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the things that you were talking about was speed. And, and one of the things I don't think people are aware of is, is the second you decide that speed is more important than technique, you're not learning and you're probably compensating. Um, speed can be another form of compensating. If you don't believe me, um, look at someone, and, and I don't want to necessarily sort of target young females, but young females with the ACL epidemic, you watch them do some sort of jump and they load and quickly, you know, they load up and then they go into that concentric movement. You just watch the knees just like they just, you know, a lot of, a lot of females move like that. Um, the answer isn't just go faster, right? We got to slow them down and we get to teach them about positioning and we want them in a, we want to put them in a scenario where they can feel what's happening. And then eventually, like you said, speed is the last thing. So speed you know, it's a speed kills, but a lot of times speed kills your technique because you're trying to, you're trying to get to the point and add speed where you're, you're just not ready for it. It's like, you know, I, uh, I've played bass guitar since I was 11 years old. I haven't been playing recently, but you learn very slow. You learn your scales and then eventually you start to add rhythm and you start to add speed to it. But you're, if you try to just go right to adding speed, you're going to miss notes. It's going to sound choppy. It's not going to sound melodic. And, uh, you know, the, the swing when done correctly is beautiful to watch. There is this, 
integration of tension and relaxation and, and knowing when to relax and and just you can actually see the kinetic chain doing what it's supposed to do but i think again people just they they want to move too quickly because they they want to get to the end result and they don't they don't simply want to uh you know put in the work and and there's another thing too about just the swing in general and the deadlift in general the musculature around the hips can create far more force than the musculature around the knees um, that's why you'll never see someone going up uh, for like a rebound and in a squat pattern with a vertical torso they're always going to shoot their hips back and maybe it's a a mini hinge but power is produced via the hinge yes you can squat a little bit and create some power but if you watch someone do a vertical leap or you watch someone do a broad jump it's all hinge it's all loading of the hips and boom and there you go um not to say that you can't get strong in that vertical posture but listen uh there's a reason why a lot of like west side barbell one of the reasons why they use box squats is because it's such a hip dominant exercise and it is a little bit gentler on the knees um, but it is more biased towards a hinge it just simply is they're sitting their butt back and they're bringing the hips forward it's this back and forth motion and that is where power is produced and it is a continuum you know it could be like you said that really really sort of 90 degree bent over type hinge where it's a high hip position where you are targeting the rdl i mean targeting the hamstrings and it looks like an rdl um, and then there is this continuum and i think what we need to truly understand is there's a sweet spot for everybody and you were talking about you know uh, tibia femur all that anthropometry stuff i think that's a lot of things people miss people just forget about looking at the individual and i can't tell you how many times someone's come in and they're like hey um, I, I can't do this. And I'm like, yeah, I know you're never going to be able to do this unless you see a surgeon and they start hacking limbs off or shortening things that you're never going to be able to get to that shape and posture because your, your bones won't allow it. So, I mean, again, we could have another discussion about that, but let's talk about the, the, the kettlebell deadlift leading into the kettlebell swing. Um, what are some of the common mistakes that you see when people are trying to learn how to swing and they're starting with the, the deadlift? Where do you feel like most people miss the boat? They try to swing their deadlift. They they quite simply just they start trying to move uh, so quickly in their deadlift, and uh, because they've heard cues in the gym to you know accelerate the weight and be powerful and move you know you got to move quickly. Uh, but that that's I, I would say um, that's a, a huge mistake where people uh, try to swing their deadlifts, but also where and I've, depending on the, the community, I've taken a little bit of heat for this. I don't consider the deadlift a pull. I consider the deadlift a push. You are pushing into the ground, um, really leveraging the power of the legs and the hips uh, versus pulling up with the back. And one of the reasons I don't refer to the deadlift as a pull is because as soon as I say pull, that mental image has already taken root. You're exactly. already going to be thinking, pull. Yeah. And you can hear this in a barbell deadlift really easily, and that's when somebody does not wedge and take the slack out of the bar, and you hear the tink, yeah. and that's they went from unloaded to tink, yeah. and exactly. they pulled. <clears throat> that motion uh, it will end up being weak, uh, potentially uh, placing you in a bad position because the if you don't know how to feed forward your tension... Uh, and create the right positions and intra-abdominal pressure, that quick load, when your body's not ready for it, uh, will load structures in ways that they possibly don't want to be loaded. And so those two things, more than anything, would be the, 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 the biggest mistakes. I, I think that people need to embrace learning how to push through the ground and have it truly be a hip-dominant movement uh, versus a pull with the back and they need to slow down and um, yeah well it's funny I think when people think hip dominant it doesn't mean hip only and I think one of the biggest mistakes people make in their in their deadlift position is they 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 always ask where should I feel this because they want they want to feel their hamstrings ready to tear right they want to feel that high hip position and they're like where should they always ask me where should I feel it I'm like kind of everywhere once you're wedged and here's the thing that I, I and I got this from you on the push. If you're if you're setting up in the deadlift correctly, you're gonna feel your quads a little bit. Mm -hmm. And and people I've said that to people. Oh my gosh, you, well yeah, it is biased towards a hip dominant movement. But again, it's not hip only. And and when I've cued people, listen, I want you to get into position. I want you to push through the floor. And again, I want you to feel those quads a little bit more. That pushing that that idea of pushing 
it's been a game changer for a lot of people. And um, I think people think hip dominant, but it's not hip only. That's one thing. And I think the other thing is, um, you know, when people get into the position, a true deadlift, in my opinion, when you're when everything is is firing the way it should, I I don't really feel one thing working. I just feel everything connected and working as a unit. So I think people are trying to like make it seem like this mechanical thing where if I bend my elbow, the bicep will kick in. And it's not like that. It's a, it's a compound movement where there are a bunch of muscles doing their job. And if you're trying to feel one thing, I think you're missing the point. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned something that's a, a kind of a big pet peeve of mine uh, when somebody's uh, they're seeking a stretch within an exercise. And the problem with that is uh, if I'm deadlifting, I'm not, uh, and see if you can follow my logic here, I'm not stretching. <laughs> I'm doing some sort of loaded strength movement. So let's save the stretching for when we want to stretch. Stop it. Stop <laughs> making sense. Stop making it. Forget um, it. We, this podcast is ruined. Done. <laughs> but that's like it's... it's uh, and that's where talking with people about their expectations uh, and, and understanding what they're, what they're expecting to feel, to do, uh, is really important because, um, and there's an old bad joke that I'll tell you once we're off the podcast. Fair enough. Um, but it, it's, you know, understanding, developing that language, having that um, the kind of open communication about expectation, feeling what, what that person is, is, is doing. Is, is key from a coaching standpoint, uh, but, but just understanding that uh, if I'm strength training, I probably don't want to be stretching. Um, now, can you get into some of these loaded positions that will feel similar to some of your stretches? Sure, but that's not the goal. The goal is not to place myself in a position where I get a big hamstring stretch and that's where I want to do my deadlift from. That's, that's, not, what we're, we're, that's not what I'm advocating. Uh, the, the idea that uh, you're in the right position with the right feed forward tension, will you feel the activation of quads, hamstrings, lats, um, intra-abdominal pressure? Yes, uh, that connected uh, aspect you were talking about. Um, but, but yeah, that, um, and we run into that also when we talk about kettlebell arm bars and uh, some of the various other things that we, we teach where, oh, yeah, I, I where should I feel this? And I, I want to feel a stretch here. Well, hang on. We're not stretching. Yeah. So that's just kind of a pet peeve. Yeah. No, and, and I think, uh, you know, I think we can talk about wedging a little bit because I think a lot of people misunderstand wedging. I think they just think it's about getting tight and, you know, bracing their abs like someone's going to punch them. And that's not a bad cue, but there's a lot more to it. And, and wedging is something where I think a lot of people, they need to feel it in order for for it to make a ton of sense. And there's, there's a couple different ways that um, I like to teach wedging. Um, one is um, simply placing the kettlebell in the right position for the individual. And one of the things we teach, um, you know, in Strong First is, you know, placing the bell. And, and, and from what I've experienced, I usually set up that handle somewhere between midfoot and heel, depending on the individual. Um, and guess what, that may change too. You may start them at the midfoot and it may not work. You may have to bias them more towards the heel or even behind the foot a little bit to get them to load up. To feel their lats and to if they have the mobility to get into that position it may enable them to wedge a little bit better so uh, the positioning of your implement in this case the kettlebell is 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 super important because if it's too far in front of you um in order to get a good wedge in a deadlift you need a posterior weight shift and if that kettlebell is too far in front of you there's no way you're going to be able to sit into it now if we're talking about a swing and we're actually getting that bell in front of you and we're going to load that's a different conversation but um i think wedging is something that people they just they you have to feel it. You really have to feel it. And, and again, people are chasing, where should I feel this? But I think it's one of those things where it, it goes everywhere. And I think one of the mistakes that I've seen with wedging is um, how to connect the lats. But I think far too many people, they want to use all of you know their biceps and their forearms and before they connect the lats. And I think that's where we start to get a lot of pissed off elbows and connective tissue because they're trying to do the work with all these muscles that surround the elbow but they're disconnecting, um, you know, at the lat and, uh, you know, they're not using it for what it could be used for, which is it's the largest muscle in the upper body and it can do some pretty cool stuff, right? I mean, look at gymnasts, look at the lats on those guys. But, um, one of the, one of the things that I like to talk about, um, when I'm teaching someone how to wedge is I use the idea of a crane 
and I say to them, hey, listen, you ever watch how a crane picks up a heavy object? They have the cables, usually it's on four sides, and they take all of the tension and all of the slack out of those cables before they decide to lift it off the ground. Because if they didn't do that and they left slack and they decided to just fly off the ground with it, those cables are gonna snap and things aren't gonna go well. So I think the idea of gradually loading tension and taking the slack out is something that I found that really helps a lot of individuals. And then another cue that I like to use is, hey, when you're deadlifting, you have no elbows. I always say, I want you to imagine that your arms are steel rods with a hook on the end. And just, you know, don't worry about biceps and this and that, just try to use your entire body. Your arms are connected to the implement, but as long as those lats are kicked in and you're gripping, I think you're gonna do all right. And I think from, uh, from the wedging standpoint, uh, the, the key um, is patience. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an old Louis Simmons uh, question and quote, uh, that um, at the start of the deadlift, you should feel equally loaded between your hands and your feet. I like that. If you're feeling it all in your feet, you're probably squatted uh, a little bit too much. Uh, if you're feeling it all in your hands, you're probably getting ready to pull with your back. But if you can find that point where there's an equal load between the hands and the feet, and then uh, keep applying pressure in that pos- position, the, the deadlift will start itself. Uh, and that's, that's the way I like to think about the wedge. The wedge is uh, this setup and, and preparatory thing that actually starts the deadlift. Uh, and if, I, if the bar won't break off the ground, I just need to wedge more. Mm-hmm. I don't need to pull more, I need to wedge more. And trying to, uh, you know, if you think about a wedge and you, you're knocking it in between uh, two objects to split them apart, uh, that's kind of what we're doing with the weight. We're trying to wedge ourselves between the ground and the weight, and in doing so, we we begin the movement of the of the, of the barbell. Uh, but patience, that's the biggest thing. Now, as far as when you're actually teaching a wedge, I know we we can obviously talk about positioning, but are there any tips that you have found that have allowed your clients and students to be more successful when they are learning how to wedge in a deadlift? I will be honest when I say this is something that uh, I have struggled uh, from a coaching standpoint. Um, it makes sense to me. I feel it very easily, uh, which is probably why I have struggled to teach it uh, because I didn't have to struggle to find it. Um, similar to teaching one-arm push-ups. I, I kind of never couldn't <laughs> do a one-arm push-up. So when I get down and do a one-arm push-up, it's <clears throat> when people want coaching, I'm like, well, just do that. <laughs> just do more, but do less. Just, just did. What was less. that? Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd. <laughs> exactly. Who knew? Do more, but do less. Uh, but I, I think that uh, with the wedge in particular, um, doing um, pauses, breaking breaking the weight off the ground, really getting that feeling of, of you've produced enough force into the ground and in, in, in between the ground and the bell to where the deadlift starts. And come back down and and just to repeat that starting position um, because it, uh, kind of end range isometrics for yeah. motions like the deadlift and the swing are very effective because if I know where I'm starting and I know when I'm finishing the body will usually fill in the gaps in between uh, so spend time in that bottom position do some paused uh, you know break the weight off the ground an inch take it back down and do several of those where you just really get that feeling of not pulling but wedging. And, and the cool thing about it is you're not necessarily cueing them to wedge. They're, you're putting them in an environment where they can feel the wedge. And um, yeah, I, I call it a triple pause deadlift, or uh, I used to call it a hover deadlift. And uh, when I sort of, I don't want to say I invented it because I did not, but I a while ago I, I you know, said this is something to consider when teaching the deadlift. And... You know, a lot of people said that was a, a pretty good cue, but when you get into the position and you start to feel the load and you just, you have them hover it an inch off the ground and you just have them hang out there for a little bit, um, you don't have to say, do you feel it? <laughs> they feel it. So one of the things I like to do is I'll have them do like a five to eight second pause and I'll have them stand up and again, really focus on locking out and then on the way down the eccentric. And, and a lot of people don't focus on the eccentric part of the deadlift, but when I'm 
teaching it, I actually do, right before they hit the ground, go back to that pause again. So they feel that tension right before they break it on the ground. Yes, I know that in general, the, the deadlift is a concentric, you know, a concentric based movement where you just lock it out and a lot of people will drop it, but there is value owning the entire range of motion. So that's one thing that I like to use is that sort of triple pause. The other thing I like to do is if I am using a bar is I'll load up a bar with a lot more weight than someone can lift. And I'll just have them get there and I'll just say, all right, I want you to try to, you know, break this off the ground, start to, you know, increase your tension, but you can't lose shape and you can't weight shift forward or backwards. Cause we've seen it. If someone is weight shifting far forward, they're going to grip with their toes and their body's going to actually come, their shoulders are going to move almost over the bell. And if they're too far in their heels, they'll pull that wheelie. And we've seen people deadlift. We've all seen it where they get to the deadlift. They almost have to step backwards because they're, they're too far backwards. So I think it's, it's another nice way to see how someone creates tension, but it also looks at where their body is in relationship to the, to the load. And that's a, another, nice, another, another nice little way to just introduce it. So um, again, these are just little tips. And, and again, if you've been coaching for a while, you may only, I mean, if you haven't been coaching for a while, you may only have a couple of cues, but as you start to teach more and more, then um, you, you'll have a few more tools in your toolbox. But um well, but, and specific to the eccentrics there, because oddly enough, when I, back in 2001, uh, 2000, well, 2000 to 2001, when I first got power to the people and I started deadlifting a lot and I went very much by the book, um, but I never trained in a situation where dropping the bar was an option. You know, I, I worked up to my best deadlift ever was 573 and I, I would go in the gym and pull um, between, you know, 495 to five, whatever, uh, in training, I was never in a position where I could drop the bar. So I was always doing a controlled, uh, eccentric. And when we transition this and we start talking about, and the reason why I think in particular with the kettlebell deadlift, the eccentric is so important is, um, we're going to be loading up that eccentric significantly in the swing. So teaching you how to perform that eccentric action under control uh, and, and with good activation is key to transitioning you into a really good swing. Uh, and it is that loaded overspeed eccentric that is the secret uh, behind why kettlebell swings are so effective for so many different people for so many different reasons. Uh, and if you, if you don't embrace the eccentric early on, that then you try and do it at speed with uh, upwards of three, three and a half times body weight eccentric load, I'm willing to bet things aren't going to go Ho swimmingly at Ho first. Hopefully you have a mouth guard because <laughs> you're going to face plant. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's one of those things, and, and we'll talk more about the swing here in a little bit, but the eccentric part I think is huge um, because learning to control that um, and, and, and also how close the implement is to your body is going to give you feedback on how well you're doing because again if you get a really really heavy kettlebell or even a very heavy bar and it starts to migrate in front of you all of that load's going right into your low back and um, that's why as we slow things down um, it's important to really get people to feel because especially if someone has had some prior low back stuff and we're trying to retool their hinge you know they need to really feel where the weight should be so as they uh, what we're talking about the eccentric point as they start to sit back a little bit um, they'll feel their back's going to tell them really quickly if they're in a good position or if they're not. And, um, you know, if you've, we've all had a little bit of back stuff. So, but I think it's important for people to feel like a good position versus a bad position. Right. And, um, you can exaggerate that as well, obviously be smart, but, um, let's talk about sort of the eccentric component because, uh, I think a lot of people misuse stuff like overspeed eccentrics. I think it's a great tool, but it's not 100% necessary. And, uh, if you understand how to swing and, and you're proficient in the swing and you understand the true timing of the swing, then maybe, maybe introduce overspeed eccentrics. But I think a lot of people use them as a corrective tool. And in my opinion, uh, I don't think I'd be doing that. I'd be going back to the deadlift. Yeah. No, I, I think that um, there's, there's overspeed eccentric is a very powerful, it's like uh, well, uh, not that I've ever, I haven't seen any of the movies, but from what I understand, there's this uh, series of movies out there called Fast and the, the Fast and the Furious. And they use something called, uh, and street racers and drag racers and people use nitric oxide, NOS, uh, to make their vehicles go very, very fast. 
but if you use too much of it, the car blows up. up. <laughs> yep. So cautionary tale. Uh, over speedy centric is basically like that for the swing. Uh, it's adding a little bit of nause to an already powerful situation. Um, so if your rhythm and timing and your coordination of the swing is good, yes, adding a little bit of overspeed eccentric can be that little bit extra that really takes it to another level for you. You don't need to do it all the time, and it shouldn't be all of your swings. Um, there are times to just stay in rhythm. Uh, one of the challenges that I give people <clears throat> is I don't care how quickly you can get 10 swings done. How long can it take you? To do 10 swings and there's only one one thing you can change when you do that and that's enjoying the float mm -hmm. and really embracing the rhythm and timing of the swing and trying to take those 10 reps and stretch them as long as you can make them last it's not going to be an easier set I can, I can promise you that your your people that are used to focusing on rpms or reps per minute are going to you know they they think that uh if if they're not looking like a rabbit in heat. Uh. <laughs> I just got a mental note. And it was like a weird Bugs Bunny thing. Never mind. I'm just going to... Uh, okay, we're going to... No, yeah, we're, not, we're not deleting that at all. We're keeping it. Um, but that that becomes you know how some people want to swing. They're, they're focused on their RPMs, reps per minute. They're trying to go so fast. Uh, whereas if they would just embrace the rhythm and timing of the swing, focus on this quick and powerful uh, eccentric into the redirect into the concentric, uh, they're actually gonna produce a lot more power uh, and have a much better swing. Uh, and it all comes down to embracing this eccentric. And, and that, that loaded eccentric is important, but there's times to just let the eccentric happen. Yeah. Uh, and it's, again, it's a continuum. And where where do you where do you need to be on that on that continuum? Yeah, let gravity do what it's gonna do. Just, just, it's just kind of hang on to it a little this bit. This right? super cool, awesome, consistent thing. It's pretty cool. Big fan of gravity. Big fan. It's, it's um, always there for us. Yeah, there was one other thing I was gonna say, and I completely blanked because I think it was the rabbit thing, um, which is which is fun. Oh, oh no, I was gonna say you were talking about reps for a minute. Um, I think when people rush their swing, they look very robotic and non-athletic. And, you know, one of the things that we teach early on uh, in, in Strong First is, is tension. Yep. And we teach high tension early on for safety purposes because we know that if you use a lot of tension in the deadlift, um, you're, you're probably going to be okay. You know, you're probably not going to get injured. But eventually what we need to do is we need to learn how to strip away a certain amount of tension so you use the right amount of tension with the right timing to get the job done. And not overdo it because all tension all the time is inefficient but if you're you know all relaxation you can't produce force and that's the dance it's the 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 it really is tension and relaxation and it is in the best athletes in the world do this naturally uh, you look at uh you know two of the best crossovers in the nba alan iverson and michael jordan they would just be kind of going with the ball and all of a sudden boom they cross someone over and they break someone's ankles. Not, not literally, of course, but they were just kind of going and going. All of a sudden, they learned how to hit the gas pedal and, and hit the brakes really, really quickly. And the best athletes can start and stop, change direction really, really efficiently. If you look at someone that swings really, really well, you can kind of see the dance. You can see that explosive hip snap. You can see the float. And then they, they fold when they need to. And, it's, and it is beautiful to watch. Um, but again, we need to understand that it is a balance of that tension and relaxation. Um, so that it's super important. So let's, let's kind of change gears onto the hike pass a little bit. Um, cause the hike pass is something that I think a lot of people goof up. I think a lot of people think they need to have it so far in front of them that they need to be sort of overstretched. But at the same time, there is a sweet spot. How do you set up in general? I know it's different for everybody. How do you set up once they've learned the deadlift, how do you set up and start to teach the hike pass? So for the, Transition to the swing, we're going to move right at or less than a foot length behind the bell. Um, so it's not far. It, you're, you're not that far behind the bell. I, I demonstrate it all the time at, at certs where I get in position and I close my eyes and I make sure the person in front of me can see that my eyes are closed. And then I, I hinge and I reach for the bell and I'm spot on the handle every time because A, my setup is that consistent. 
uh, as Fabio likes to say, the setup is your first rep. Mm-hmm. And you, if you bypass that and you wait until the bell's in movement to do your, quote, first rep, you're probably missing a good piece of the puzzle. So your setup is the first rep. Uh, number, so we're a foot length or less behind the bell. Uh, ignore the bell. One of the biggest mistakes people make in getting set for a swing is they reach for the bell first. Then they try to find their hinge. Reverse that. Find your hinge, then grab the bell. And if you will embrace that and change that, you will be in such a different position uh, for your swing. Um, Third thing with the hike pass is uh, you don't need to add to it. And that's where people, they hike the bell and then they go ahead and round their back or dip their hips and try to add to the hike. You don't need to add to the hike. Hike it so that the arms reconnect to the ribs, so that the lats are now part of your hips, and hold the position. Which the converse and uh, the fourth mistake for uh, within the hike pass is where the hips shoot up mm-hmm. during the hike. We see that a lot, and, and, I, and I see that time, and I've done it too. I've been, I've made that mistake as well, and I, I really try to be aware of yes, that now. Oh, come on, <laughs> gosh, I'm never gonna, you know, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna live that down. Well, okay, fine. We'll talk about that later. Um, but yes, the, the hip shooting up first um, as part of the hike, uh, it's, it's taking you out of that great athletic hinge position. It is changing what you're doing with the swing. Uh, so really being able to hold, uh, I'm sorry, the gladiator uh, line always comes to hold the line. Yeah. Hold the line. By the way, the the possibly the best opening in cinematic history. I I think there's a good argument to be made that that opening is one of the best opening sequences in cinematic history. Anywho, hold the line. Hold the hinge. The hike. uh, There's an if you've gotten into your good hinge position, you've got the belt just far enough in front of you, you produce that nice hike to connect the lats, you've got everything you need out of there, and that's where you can pop and really push down into the ground, produce a lot of power. Yeah, and I think the location of the bell is so important because, again, if, uh, if it's too far in front of you, you're not going to be in that posterior weight shift because you have to load the hips up enough but still feel your feet. Because if and you're it, on your heels, you're going to pull that wheelie and you're going to fall back because we've all seen that. We've all... We've all I've seen it at search. You try to get people to find that sweet spot and they fall backwards a little bit. And the same thing forward. If they're too far forward, they're on their toes and then they're going to fall forward. So it is finding that sweet spot. But I think also, I think people don't trust their hinge and what they do to try to find tension, that's why they shoot their butt in the air. Mm-hmm. Right? They, they're trying to feel something because their wedge is not where it should be. So they stick their butt in the air and then they hike and then they go. Or they're trying to swing the bell with their backswing. Yes. Um, and the backswing is where you load up. And, and uh, there's, there's a, a golfing story of a, a pro golfer. Uh, her father was her coach, and, and uh, she was having trouble at whatever tournament. And so they, they came in, and, and uh, he actually took the train in, got there to see her at the driving range, and he watched her take like four or five swings. And she's like, well, what do you think? And he goes, well, just hit the ball with your backswing. You're doing that fast enough. And he turned around and left. like he knew that was all she needed to what the thing he needed to uh, tell her and the the point is uh you don't swing the bell with your backswing but you can sure mess your swing up with your backswing and the hike pass is that first hike that first uh backswing that sets the foundation for the whole thing yeah and also what you'll see with a lot of people is the hike pass is not is not very good and four or five reps in is where they start to get their groove mm-hmm. right because um essentially what's happening on the hike pass is you kind of have to kind of i don't want to say recreate that eccentric load but once you're swinging that bell's coming underneath you and you're going to get that eccentric load just by holding on to the bell so the first rep is is really getting wedged up into that perfect position so you can try to recreate that eccentric load and that's why wedging and getting into that optimal position is so important because um, mechanically, you have to get into that position on the first rep, and that's why it's the same reason why you'll see a lot of people if they're hitting heavy, uh, heavy doubles and triples in their deadlift. The first rep's a lot harder, yeah, 
and it, and I think uh, it might have been Pablo or maybe Louis. What is it? The, is there a certain amount of effort that they said that on the first rep it takes X amount more effort to to lift based off of the other repetitions? I forget where I heard yeah, that. Pablo has it in the the um, in the manuals now. It's the energetics of the first rep, and it is about thirty percent more energy required uh, to produce the first rep. Uh, which is why iron cardio, I think, is so effective because it's just a bunch of first reps. Anyway, I don't know where that came from. I might be in Boston filming a special project this weekend that I can't actually talk about. We won't talk about we it. We won't talk about that. First first rule of Fight Club. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, that that concept, and which is why when we use Rifkin's, Mark Rifkin's uh, dead swing, uh, and is a major part of our teaching progression, and it is the bridge between the deadlift and the swing, is this dead swing where you're forced to hold your hike position, pop, hike, park, returning to that great hinge and, and uh, position. Uh, the dead swing succeeds in so many ways, but in particular just it is that bridge between the deadlift and the swing that reinforces everything that you're looking for, uh, that we're looking for uh, within the hike pass and within reproducing that hinge pattern one perfect swing at a time. Yeah, it's funny because, uh, you know, when I started practicing that um, and I started to do it with that real high tension, um, you know what, I've, I've never really gotten neurologically fatigued with kettlebells until I started doing multiple heavy explosive reps and then down the road multiple heavy like double cleans where i would just do you know a single clean uh, with you know two bells heavy-ish for me and you know just doing like eight to eight to ten sets of one but with really really fast explosive hits and being aggressive that was one of the the the, the first times i felt that true sort of cns fatigue right the, the same way i would feel it in like a heavy grind with a barbell and um and it really came down to effort and speed and, and execution and intent and I think that's one of the things that you can get out of the that sort of that the dead stop swing is man, it's a powerful tool. Like I, I firmly believe that if you can get that down really well and you're you're any type of athlete, if you can do some really fast explosive kettlebells, kettlebell swings with like a heavy bell. I'm talking I mean, this kettlebell's up to what, two hundred and ten pounds now? Crazy. I mean, you know, if you can swing that well, not hang on to it for dear life, but if you can swing that well with a nice hike pass, you're pretty damn powerful. Well, let's go there now because I think it's a key point uh, and uh, when a ballistic becomes a fast grind and you actually lose your power production, um, it, it's, it's a problem. And can you pick up a heavy bell and perform a swing-like motion? Yes. Are you producing the, uh, the, the power output and, the, and the, the rate of force development and the things that we're looking for within the swing? No. Uh, you do reach a point where it is too heavy. Um, but it looks cool. But it looks cool. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've been around some of those heavier bells. And I, a few years ago, I posted videos of them. Um, and and those, you know, those got a lot of feedback and a lot of, a lot of um, um, social media response. Um, but man, I definitely felt the, the difference. And so, yes, you can swing too heavy. Um, and losing that quality is, is a big deal because now, whereas most people are afraid to train slow because they think it'll make them slow, now you're actually doing something that's changing the pattern and the force, the, it's the rate of force development. It alters the mechanics. It, it alters the rate of force development. It, it alters everything you're looking for out of that swing. Now you are making yourself less powerful, not more powerful. Uh, the other aspect of the swing, uh, very quickly, is the height of the swing. Um, for testing standards, we look for parallel uh, to the deck. If I'm teaching you how to snatch, I want you able to pop that thing to head level or just above. That's the amount of power production that you need in the swing to make an efficient kettlebell snatch. So I get panicked text messages and emails from people, oh, you need, you need to go to social media and look at so-and-so's swing. They're swinging above chest level. Yeah. And? 
I think it's a great swing. Yeah, exactly. If you watch me on uh, when I when I do swings, um, you'll see me popping it to head level. I want that extra little bit of power production. I don't want to put a roof on my power. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that only ever swing to chest level are literally putting a roof on their power and never letting themselves fully express that energy through their body. Um, so uh, I think I was out of sequence, but those two things came to mind and obviously they bother me. So I wanted to go ahead and just talk about them. Well, I think with the heavy swings, I think uh, there's a difference between swinging a heavy bell correctly mm. and having the bell swing you. <laughs> it, I actually think it's the same as uh, running. If you go on a treadmill and run at 10 miles an hour and do a bunch of workouts and you think you're going to be able to prep for a marathon, it's not going to go well because they're, it's, it looks the same, but it's very different from force application, et cetera. And, and, and I kind of think that's the same idea, right? I mean, uh, I think people, they want to do something beyond what they're currently capable of because it looks cool. So uh, I think it's just, it's just, it's, it's interesting. We've all done it, right? We all want to try. And there's nothing wrong with going out there and experimenting and having a little bit of fun, but that's, that's a one-off, right? Like that's, that shouldn't be the norm. Um, let's talk about uh, a little bit more about tension and relaxation and then we'll, we'll wrap it up because I think we could probably do this all day. Um, we know that at the very, very top of the swing, that's where we have that float and that's where we need to relax. Um, but is there certain parts of the swing where you feel like we need more tension and more grip? And are there points of the swing where we need maybe potentially a little bit less? And how, what does the interplay of, of grip cycling look like in tension and relaxation? On one end of the extreme, you can treat um, the kettlebell swing almost like the golf swing in that your grip on a golf club is actually very light yet it doesn't come out of your hands. Meaning when centrifugal force kicks in and you're producing power in your golf swing, your grip naturally tightens. So as we're hiking the bell, and I've mentioned this a, a few times and, and hopefully I'll be able to get on a force plate with uh, Antonio Squillante and, and, and verify this for a second uh, go round, but um, I can produce three to three and a half times body weight eccentric load at the bottom of a two-handed 24 kilo swing. So, I, and I can do the same thing in one arm swing. So that means that 53 pound bell actually weighs over 600 pounds. That's a lot to hold on to. And my grip naturally responds to the pressure of that eccentric and redirecting that force where now it's not just 600 pounds of eccentric load. Now I'm redirecting that so it increases a little bit more. Um, so in, in a certain uh, way of thinking, you can let the grip respond to the loads of the kettlebell, which means when you're at top and it's floating, kind of loosen up a little bit. You can loosen up a little bit. I even let go periodically and then re-grab the, the handle just to prove the point of the float. And okay, l- let's sure. stop right there because don't hear what Brett's not saying. <laughs> He's not saying go and start letting go of the kettlebell. He's just Correct. saying from a... From a demonstration standpoint, it does get the point across. And I do the same thing. I was like, listen, you don't need to give it the death grip at the top. Technically, yeah. you don't even have to touch it. But it's 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 a cue. It's a learning environment. It's 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 not the norm. So right. don't start just swinging bells and taking your hands off and high-fiving each other in the air because <laughs> uh, that kettlebell is going to end up somewhere that it shouldn't. And it's probably going to make someone pretty angry in the process. So, yeah, top of the swing during the float. You can relax the grip uh, during the eccentric. Um, if, if you are performing an overspeed eccentric, <coughs> then you are going to reestablish your grip and, and grip tightly as you go to use the lats and pull that bell down into the overspeed eccentric. If you're allowing gravity to do its thing and a more natural return of the arms to the ribs, still maintaining the, the rhythm of the swing, uh, as you transition into the hinge and that load increases, your grip will naturally increase. Um, so that's kind of the cycling. If you bring too much grip, too much arms, you're actually going to get in the way of the rhythm of the swing. And power is about rhythm, patience, timing. Uh, and if you add extra tension to the wrong moment, you get in the way. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I've always, because uh, people have asked me, you know, what, which, where should I feel the grip? And, and generally speaking, if the kettlebell is underneath you and underneath your legs, you're going to need a lot more grip than it's when in front of your body. Generally speaking, obviously it depends on what you're doing. Um, but uh, I got I to talk about one more thing now because I mean, we're, we're, we're just, we're, we're going to keep going. Um, the timing of the hinge and, and the amount of fold in, in the hinge. And I think this is something that people uh, get a little bit nervous about because I think we get them in the deadlift, we've got this beautiful hinge and they start swinging. And a couple things happen. One, we see the mistake of hitting themselves in the butt on the bottom of the swing. Why does that happen? That is somebody that is stopping the, the eccentric uh, before they should. They're not allowing the loading to occur. Uh, my mindset when I'm loading up in the eccentric is I want to, to the right degree, not to the maximum degree, to the right degree, I want to sit into that hinge and absorb all of that eccentric goodness before I redirect it into the next concentric. Eccentric goodness. Eccentric goodness. It's that's a, that's it's a actually thing. our new band. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag eccentric, eccentric goodness. goodness. Um, but yeah, typically that's somebody that is stopping their hinge or not sitting into their hinge. So the bell doesn't know that you've stopped. So it continues to swing and hit, and hit you in the butt. We don't want that. And I, I know people have been like, oh, I love it when the bell kicks up. And I'm like, yeah, that's not a thing. Uh, that's like saying I enjoy the bruises on my wrist from kettlebell cleans. Yeah, or I love tearing my hands I apart. love tearing and my can, hands. And we can talk about the, the, the hand stuff another time because I think people use it as a badge of honor. But um, yeah, yeah, so I think... Frustrating. I think, yeah. Again, that's one of the big mistakes we see is they, they go to hinge and they stop the hinge prematurely, but the bell keeps going, hits them in the butt, and then you get this sort of wonky hinge back and forth and yep. the timing uh, the timing just never sort of evens out. Um, and then the other thing that I think we see is on the upswing, I think a lot of people finish their hips before, uh, they finish the hips prematurely and then the timing gets goofed up as well. The, yeah, I mean, <coughs> pardon me. Keeping the arms against the ribs as long as possible, allowing for that full expression of the extension of the hips. And, and here's one of my things, and I kind of got into a, a little bit of a discussion on, on the forum. Full range of motion at the, of the swing is at the hips. Where the bell goes, how high it goes, that's the output. Um, I'm not focused on the, the output I'm focused on full extension of the hips. That's to me is full range of motion. Uh, I can produce a very high power swing, but directed at a specific target. The bell's not going to go that high, but my hip extension was full. So full range of motion at the hips. Keep those arms against the ribs as long as possible. Let that power coming through the body blow the arms off of the uh, producing that pendulum and and uh, arc uh, that is just dictated by the uh, shoulders and, and arms. Um, let that happen. Uh, but yeah, I, and that's just where the towel swing comes so much into play. Feedback, where immediate you, feedback. Yeah, you just learn how to stay in rhythm with the bell uh, and, and how you can you know, produce this uh, rhythmically repetitive power uh, that is uh, it's just awesome. It's fun to watch too. I um I wrote an article a long time ago called Newton's Cradle and the Kettlebell Swing. Gosh, that was a long time ago. It's still actually I'm still pretty happy with it. But um, it's the idea that uh, you know if if you don't know what Newton's Cradle is, it's one of those things you tend to see on people's desks, and it's a really good demonstration of physics. It's basic kinetic energy, and and you know if you have three of those sort of silver balls going back and forth, um, in order for the opposing side to move, there needs to be that point of impact where the outside uh, silver ball hits the middle one and then transfers the energy to the opposite side. And it, there's no way it's going to happen in any other sort of timing. It's just, it needs to happen and, and, and needs to go from there. And I think if people see that rhythmic idea of the Newton's cradle, they'll, they'll start to see how it actually uh, translates to the swing because it is rhythmic. It's, it should look just almost like a swing set or uh, this pendulum. And I think, uh, Again, a lot of people, it's just choppy. If, if something is out of sync, it's, you're going to see it, and it's going to look disjointed, and it's not going to look smooth, and it's not going to look athletic. It's going to look um, it's going to look like they're fighting their own body before they're even trying to get a training effect. It's the difference between trying to swing the bell and swinging the bell. 
I think we maybe have all had the experience of trying to throw a ball mm-hmm. and it goes in the dirt six feet in front of you versus throwing the ball where it flies and goes mm-hmm. to the intended target. Uh, most people spend time trying to swing versus swinging. And uh, that would be a much letting go of the trying to swing uh, aspect of things would be a good progression for a lot of folks. Yeah, I mean, I think we just spent about over an hour talking about the deadlift and the swing, and, and we could probably spend another couple of hours doing that. But um, Scratch the surface. Well, uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed us rambling on about deadlifts, hinges, kettlebell swings, and rabbits. Uh, it's, um, it's wired. And <laughs> rabbits, and rabbits, and swings, and kettlebells, and rabbits. Um so anyways, uh, I'm not I'm not sure where to go, but anyways, <laughs> thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor, give us some positive reviews on whatever platform you're you're listening on and uh, we appreciate you guys and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, we're going to ask you for a favor. Please leave us some positive reviews. Be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks again for listening to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast.